This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Blitroast. Today is February 20th, 2020, and this is episode 177. I'm Scott Delonaboom. And I'm Shannon Waters. Welcome back. Good to be here. On today's show, we'll be discussing the provincial budget that was released earlier this week, the latest with what's happening with the wet sweatin' and the blockades, as well as the BC government's strategic economic plan and what that means for uh, cities and the rest of the province. But first, we have to thank those who helped make the show possible. We have 88 people contributing every month. We gained a couple new patrons this week, so now we're at uh, $267 coming in. And shoutouts to Mark Allen and Setsi Wheat for your support. Politos is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politcoast enter the offer code CITIZEN, all lowercase, for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free hyphen trial. Well, let's jump in to the BC Poly Roundup. Shannon, you're the BC Today's legislative correspondent main writer. So could you fill us in on kind of what's happening in the legislature and what to expect as the session gets underway? All right. So we have just finished the second week of the spring session here in Victoria. So last week we got the throne speech, which is sort of the government laying out in a very opaque way its sort of priorities for the coming session in the year ahead. And then on Tuesday, we had the budget come down. So now that that is all out of the way, we get to see the government's legislative agenda going forward. Most of the spring session is taken up by estimates debates for the various ministries. Today, MLA spent basically the whole day debating the budget, and we haven't seen a lot of legislation yet so far. We had a bill, we've had the budget bill, obviously, and we had a bill about safety when it comes to transportation. I think it mostly applies to trucks and buses, as well as another piece of legislation from the Attorney General, which is going to modernize the Domestic Arbitration Act. Yeah, so everything is sort of bright and shiny and new at this point in time, and we shall see what the session holds going forward. Okay. Uh, I guess the uh, big thing that's going to be likely happening is the ICBC reforms. Do we have an idea when legislation for that's going to be rolled out? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We will likely see it at some point during the spring session. The government doesn't often telegraph its legislative agenda much in advance. Sometimes we get a heads up the morning that a bill is getting introduced or maybe the day before. I would think... Like the ICBC bill is likely to be a major piece of legislation. It's a big shift for the Crown Corporation and is likely to see some pushback from the Liberals on debate. So I would say probably sooner rather than later, but I really don't like trying to read the legislative tea leaves because you never really know how things are going to go. Right. Okay. 
Well, we'll keep an eye out for that yeah, as the session progresses. But let's jump into the big news out of Victoria this week, the budget. Uh, so Tuesday it was released. Can you kind of walk us through what the highlights of it are? Well, depending on who you talk to, there weren't really a lot of highlights. Um, I believe it was described as sort of a stand-pat budget. I've seen the phrase staying the course thrown around. I've used it myself. This was not a budget like we have seen in previous years with the NDP sort of unveiling new major programs and making major investments, especially over the long term, which is something that we'd sort of seen over the past couple of years. Now, that's not to say that there weren't some interesting measures in here. Taxes are going up on high earners again. I believe it's those earning over $220,000 a year. Yeah, so they're, they're adding a new income bracket to the income taxes on that. I saw some coverage of this that described it as a wealth tax, but really it's just a new bracket in the income taxes where the marginal tax rate kicks in at 220000 Yeah, and I think that's just over 20%, 20.5%, I believe. So that, you know, obviously drew a lot of people's attention. We are also going to see the provincial sales tax applied to all sweetened carbonated beverages, whether that's artificial sweetener or natural sweeteners. They are no longer going to be exempted as food products as of July 1st. It's a little weird that they were before. And that's that's kind of what stakeholders were saying. Like these, these products don't have really any nutritional value and therefore the tax should be applied to them. For instance, the cancer agency was in favor. The health minister thinks it's a good idea. But if you're somebody who enjoys, say, energy drinks or Diet Coke or you're a big fan of root beer, you know, that's that's going to add a slight increase to your cost. The PST is 7%. So and that kicks in, like I said, on July 1st. But this is only for the carbonated stuff. So if you want uncarbonated sugar water, you're still not going to be with the PST. Yes. So uh, PST exemptions are this weird, long, complicated thing. And so as far as I'm concerned, anything that kind of rolls those back and makes it simpler is probably for the better. Well, and for a lot of people, you know, unless you're paying really close attention to your grocery bill, you're probably not even going to really see the difference, right? Oh, probably not. The other big thing for students is this BC Access Grant. That has been unveiled. I've seen a lot of positive reaction from various student organizations over this one. And also a lot of talk about sort of how long they have lobbied for something like this. We're told that it's going to increase, like there will be more eligibility for funding support for people who are seeking post-secondary education of various types. And it's expected to benefit about 40,000 students. Right. So this basically replaces some existing programs with this new student grant, which is upfront rather than at the end of studies. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So you're getting the money sort of as you're going into programs, what, rather than having to pay the cost yourself and, and sort of getting reimbursed later. So obviously lowering barriers to entry when it comes to post-secondary education, generally a good thing. So, so this gives money up front. Were there much in the budget at the back end for education to kind of try and reduce the cost elsewhere? Not that I remember seeing. Budget days are always overwhelming because you're just like, here are several hundred pages of figures and descriptions and forecasts to go through. 
So yeah, I mean, in previous years, we've seen them take provincial interest off of student loans. That was something that came down, I believe, in the last budget. So something that the government has taken action on previously, and then sort of the follow-up this year has been the access grant side of things. So yeah, they're putting about uh, $41 million into that. So it so represents a fairly sizable investment. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other big thing, there was a lot of speculation, although both the premier and the finance minister were very firm on the fact that this was going to be a balanced budget. We're not going into the red. You know, the province is not, you know, the the provincial books are still in the black. That was something that a lot of people speculated about, especially as we've seen our surpluses get smaller and smaller in consecutive budgets. But so far, the NDP managing to sort of stick to their guns on that one and keep us, you know, keep the provincial books balanced. Right. So overall, we're spending about $60 billion in this budget. And that leaves about a $227 million surplus after the contingency funds accounted for. Yes. And the contingency funds are fairly sizable. Over billion just- dollars in this case, I believe. Yeah, I think we're just under a billion for this year, which is the first time it's dipped that low so far, but they are expected to tick up in future. Uh, The other thing that caught my eye is that spending and revenue, like expenses and revenues over the next year are expected to be basically equal. So 60 billion out, 60 billion in. I think there's a little more on the revenue side that is expected, but you know, it's some people have talked about sort of razor's edge or very thin surpluses expense to revenue. I mean, we're just, we're going to have to see how things go. It's probably worth mentioning that like as far as most economists are concerned, that it's really not that big a deal, which if it's slightly under or slightly over in the grand scheme, it's pretty negligible. Yeah, and that's something that we did also see in the lead up to the budget. It was like, well, does it really matter if we go slightly, like we have a slight deficit or a slight surplus? Probably not so much. But I think it's it's more of maybe not an ideological thing, but you know, there's a lot of talk from the opposition and from people who remember the supposed dismal decade in the 90s who talk a lot about the NDP being poor money managers and putting the province into debt. And so I think that's something that, you know, does weigh to a certain degree on various minds within the government when they're looking at presenting a budget. I, I think probably weighs very heavily considering the, the lengths they seem to want to go to to try and keep everything in the black. Yeah, well, we've got one, supposedly one more, but this is the other thing that sort of came up today. Everybody's like, this is not a re-election budget. This is not a budget that a government introduces when they're planning on sending a province back to the polls in the near future. So, you know, there's still a lot of speculation that we're going to see an election before it's scheduled to take place in October of 2021. But... Yeah, I mean, I, I could see it in this case where... You know, that they have a bunch of stuff they're thinking about doing, but decide to kind of keep it in their back pocket to roll out in the middle of a campaign rather than announce it in a budget. Potentially, although there has been, you know, a degree of criticism of this budget, particularly from social service providers, that the government sort of hasn't invested as much as people were hoping for, hasn't done enough to sort of close gaps on that front. 
and a lot of the programs that people are excited about are long term. So housing, childcare, both of those are on a decade long span. So I could see the government essentially saying like, hey, we're working on it. We're addressing these issues, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. We are going to need more time. We are going to need you to put us back in government again. I don't know. I mean, I get I roll my eyes a lot about the election speculation because it's been going on ever since I came to the House in September of 2017. Everybody's like, oh, we're just a few months away from the next provincial election. So far, it hasn't happened. I guess we'll see. I guess we will have to. But speaking of housing, there wasn't a huge amount new in this budget. There's a lot of there's a fair bit of spending happening here, but it's mostly stuff that was previously announced. But they are increasing the budget slightly to bring in 200 additional social and supportive housing units beyond what they'd previously announced. Yes. And that that was true for a lot of investments. Most of them are sort of about the same as we saw last time around, maybe a little more spending going on, but certainly nothing nearly as dramatic as we'd seen in previous years. Well, let's move on to the transportation side. So there's 20 million being put in to top up the electric vehicle rebates that had proven way more popular than anticipated. And they ended up nearly running out of money last year for them. So that's being topped up. There's also an electric planes tax credit, which was a bit of a surprise <laughs> to a lot of people. Yes, I mean, we, we do have a company that's here in BC that is planning to launch a fully electric fleet. They did their first uh, test flight, I want to say, in like December or November. It was late in the fall last year. This is Harbor Air. Yeah. Uh, runs flights from uh, Vancouver to Victoria and other uh, port cities. Yep. So they are hoping to go fully electric at some point. So I'm sure they are enthused about this. And I guess anybody else who gets really excited about electric airplanes will be happy. For sure. But on the other side of the transportation thing, there wasn't a huge amount new in terms of transportation infrastructure or major spending there. They highlight a bunch of highway projects they have ongoing, as well as the Broadway, sub well, the half the Broadway subway that's already funded out to Arbutus. But uh, I think a lot of people are really hoping that there'd be something more in here. In the throne speech, they teased like a commuter rail to the valley. Yeah, they did. All we get here is a transportation land use study for the Fraser Valley. and But none of the big you know, transit things that a lot of people here in Metro Vancouver are really looking for. You know, the last half of the line out to UBC, the gondola to SFU. None of those really seem to be here, which I think surprised quite a few people in just how little new stuff there was for transit. Yeah, especially considering, you know, the government's language around clean BC and this need to really reduce emissions. And they're already looking at this active transportation strategy. But yeah, for the most part, the the sort of new commitments, and I'm not even sure how many of them were truly new, were basically, we're going to spend some money to look at this option and see how viable it is and what the actual costs might be. And not a lot of this is where we're going in the next few years. This is the timeline for building these actual commitments. Yes. Yeah, so they announced a couple different studies. One of them was also the uh, South Island transportation, but that was rolled out earlier this past year. It's really, I think, just the Fraser Valley that represents new transportation that they're looking at here. Yeah, the South Island stuff has been done. And I mean, they were looking at a, an alternate emergency route for the Malahat, which they basically decided 
there wasn't one that was viable. And so we're just going to, I don't know, keep considering what we're going to do when the highway gets shut down. But yeah, for the most part, sort of, like I said, stand pat, staying the course budget is is really what we saw earlier in the week. Yeah, no disappoint a lot of transit advocates around here because they were quite disappointed to see a lot of highway funding, but no real new commitments at all for transit. And especially nothing that really leans into the uh, clean BC and climate change issues. This was, at least as far as transit was concerned, really seemed like a budget that was largely unconcerned with climate change when it came to transportation. And I mean, you know, worth pointing out, when it comes to Clean BC, which was announced a year ago this past December, so it was December 2018, they announced this program, the government has yet to actually announce how they're going to cut about a quarter of the emissions that they say they're going to cut that they've legislated the target for by 2040. So like Clean BC is here, the government touts it as this amazing sort of North America leading program for reducing emissions and sort of shifting BC's economy towards the new and the green and the electrified. But we really didn't see, like you said, much that was new this year as to how that's going to happen and the various changes that we already know, including, you know, better transit options for people that are going to be needed to get us there. Yeah. And I, I, I keep circling back to the uh, Broadway line to UBC, but it really seems like a no brainer project, which they could have gotten a big boost of publicity. And, you know, if the, the NDP in a riding they're trying to hold aren't pushing forward with this massively popular project, it, while they're being held up by the Greens, it kind of makes you wonder what it's actually going to take to finally get that built and funded. For sure. Well, let's move on from there to the Netflix tats that is being brought in (laughs) as it's been branded, even if that's maybe not the most accurate way to describe it. Uh, But it is just so catchy. (laughs) Yeah, so basically what the finance minister has told us, because this this was an item that didn't garner a lot of attention immediately, but sort of came up towards the end of the day. So when the finance minister was asked about it on Wednesday, she told us that really all they're doing is sort of making sure that all streaming providers, regardless of where they operate from are looped into the PST. So we were told that services like Crave and Apple TV and Amazon Prime are already subject to the PST, whereas Netflix, and it, and it does seem to be like Netflix taxes is not entirely accurate, but it's not doesn't seem entirely inaccurate either because it really does seem like Netflix, the company, is sort of the target of what this change will be and just making sure that they are subject to the same sort of tax burden and measures that all of the other streaming services that people pay for are. Yeah, they're one of the lone holdouts. And what's at least actually happening here is they're basically just lowering the threshold at which point online service providers have to pay PST and they're dropping it by something like from 30 million to 10 million and which NBC would put Netflix over that threshold when it wasn't before. Yeah, and my understanding is that some of the other services had basically been looped in because they actually operate, they have brick and mortar operations, uh, whereas Netflix does not, and so was was not caught up in that previously. Right. 
So what does the budget have to say about the cannabis legalization and the revenues that we're expecting to be getting from that? Not a whole lot, really. (laughs) That's one of my sort of pet causes or topics, if you will. So really, the only things that we saw related to cannabis in the budget was that the government has once again revised down its projection about how much revenue from the federal excise tax the province is expecting to get. So once upon a time in the 2019-20 year, the government was thinking it was going to get $75 million in federal excise tax. As of Tuesday, that figure is now $6 million. So drastic reduction there. And that's down $2 million from where it was in November when we got the second quarterly report. So that number has just been shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. Wow. You, what would it be so hard to make money selling pot? Well, by and large, Alberta seems to be the one province that is making lots of money and everybody else is like just hoping they can cover their costs. So in the budget lockup, I asked, because the only way we were seeing sort of cannabis revenues represented was through revenue brought in by the Liquor Distribution Board, which is responsible both for selling alcohol in retail form from the BC liquor stores, as well as as a wholesaler to private retailers in the province. And their revenues are all rolled together. So I asked, you know, can we pull liquor from cannabis? Are you able to tell us, you know, how much the LDB made from alcohol sales versus cannabis sales? And I was told no. So, and then I asked, you know, well, are we going to see those separated before the Liquor Distribution Board tables its annual report? I believe that happens in July. And again, I was told no. So we're not really going to know much about how much money the province is making, aside from that it's not making very much, on cannabis sales until this summer. Now, the things we did see related to cannabis in the budget is they are adding $18 million to support public health protection and enable the safe implementation of cannabis legalization. So, you know, furthering the government's agenda when it comes to I guess, rolling out the rules and dealing with sort of the the retail side of things here. And another $12 million going to help bolster compliance and enforcement. That's both on cracking down on illegal retailers, and I assume to a certain degree production, as well as continuing to do security checks for legal cannabis retailers who are trying to get into the game. So they're investing more money sort of on the enforcement side of things, but we really don't know much about how much money the government is making or not making off of cannabis sales. Okay. So I guess we'll have to wait for the uh, fiscal updates throughout the year to see whether or not they were right in their estimates on how much is going to be coming in. I would venture that they are very wrong (laughs) at least from their initial projections which at the time we were told were conservative but yeah it's it's still going to be a waiting game fois that have been filed with the attorney general's ministry to release revenues are being held back because they say that putting out the information about how much the ldb is making or is selling is essentially a competition issue because the government is technically in competition with private retailers when it comes to cannabis sales as well. So even filing freedom of information request is not getting the information that some people, myself included, are curious about. Yeah, it seems a bit questionable 
logic on why not to release them? Yeah, I don't. I don't know if anybody's challenged that yet, but essentially it's a waiting game. Like I said, eventually the LDB will file its annual report. That information will become public. And then I expect there will be a lot more questions as to why. I mean, some questions, some conjectures, some general statements about why cannabis sales are what they are here in BC. Okay, well, we'll wait for that. So wrapping this up, how's the reception generally being towards this budget? Definitely not as effusive as I would say we've seen in previous years. I think sort of my my impression of what's happened is the people who were going to be disappointed were sort of proven right. And the people who were hoping for, you know, more continued investment or who might have been excited about certain things weren't. So they were also disappointed. So I, I would say the reaction has been more muted with some exceptions, you know, say student groups about the BC Access Grant, etc. Yeah, it, it does seem to have been a bit of a dud. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but uh, ha- has not generated all that much excitement. And in some cases, raised quite a few eyebrows and injured some people. Like I saw today that transit funding got cut for uh, the rest of... BC that's handled by BC Transit rather than TransLink. And that, I think, drew a fair bit of ire from uh, transit advocates, as well as people looking for uh, more action on climate change. And even though that's kind of to offset some surpluses in the agency's budget, it did, I think, piss off quite a few people. Yeah. And I mean, I I haven't read the details of that story yet. I, I you know, was sort of tent, uh, around the scrums when the finance minister was being asked those questions. But certainly a surprise that, you know, like we were talking about the transit side of things before, there there really hasn't been anything sort of flashy when it comes to, you know, helping people take the bus or take transit options, particularly if you're outside of, like you said, the lower mainland. Yeah, there, there's, I think, a few initiatives underway. They're bringing in more electric buses and they're wanting to bring in a modernized payment system, which I'm hoping would be eventually basically be a BC-wide compass card sort of deal. But yeah, right now there's a huge amount happening there. And that kind of raises the question why, especially when the government is in pretty good financial shape. We didn't really touch on the debt at all, but it's the debt to GDP is still very healthy. We have some of the lowest debt levels in the country. And... I, I know the government seems to be deathly afraid of ever running a deficit, but you know this isn't the 90s. Interest rates are a tenth of what they are back then, and kind of got to wonder why they aren't willing to make long-term investments when long-term debt is close to being free, considering how low real interest rates are. Yeah, and I... Part of that, I think, like the last couple of fiscal updates that we've got, there's been a lot of talk about sort of a global economic slowdown. And I think the other phrase, a lot of weather related metaphors around the economy and sort of what's to come. So I, I think yeah, it's... it's I, I kind of get that. But on the other hand, if you're going to do counter cyclical spending, so, you know, you keep keep spending up and even increase it a bit as the economy slows down to kind of offset those losses, this would seem to be the time to start to slowly increase that as it seems like there's some uh, bumps on the horizon and and growth might be slowing down a bit. Yeah. And 
So it's been an interesting, like, seeing also some of the credit rating agencies react to the budget, essentially saying in in certain respects that the government is playing it sort of very conservatively on on many fronts. I, you know, I'm not in any any of the government ministers' heads, so I can't tell you what they're thinking. But yeah, the, the whole thing reads as very sort of cautious. Like I said, staying the course. I'm not sure, you know, exactly sort of what that means. And, you know, as we go through the rest of the year, whether there might be sort of more of a backlash to that than we've previously seen, or whether it it ends up being a good look at the end of the day. I don't know. I mean, the the liberals would pounce on them either way. Uh, Right now, yeah. That is what the opposing party does. (laughs) Yeah. Now they're just phrasing it as, oh, they they need to ramp up all these taxes to try and keep the budget balanced. You know, if they were to go into deficit, it would be attacking them on that. But yeah. And it was, I I don't think, sorry, go on. Well, it was interesting when we talked to um, the co-finance critics about sort of the budget. On the one hand, they were castigating the government for the new sort of income tax bracket and, you know, the pop tax, although not so much because it's hard to criticize the government for trying to get kids to not drink so much sugar or aspartame or whatever. But they were also saying you're not spending enough on these various priorities. And particularly, I think the criticism that is likely to stick the most, especially as we look going into a new election, is that the government hasn't done enough to deliver the affordability that it said it was going to do. Like that was the NDP sort of main, the core of their platform in 2017 is we're going to increase affordability. We are going to invest to make this province more affordable for people. And I don't think you can argue that they haven't done that, you know, in in various respects, in various sectors. But the message that the liberals are really hammering at the moment is you haven't done enough you haven't gone far enough on this, even as they sort of critique the government for various efforts that it has made to address affordability. Yeah, they've definitely, I think, done more than the previous government did, especially in this last couple of years. But it's still quite a ways away from what is probably enough to really make a difference for a lot of people. And that's that's going to be a big thing going into the next election, right? Yeah, and I know Ian, who's off tonight, was pretty disappointed to see that there wasn't more being done on getting uh, childcare delivery moving ahead a lot faster and getting more spaces up and running quicker. And yeah, and I mean... Days hasn't really happened yet. No, we've seen pilot programs. I think the figure that we got was about 28,000 families are currently benefiting from those pilot-type programs. But again, like housing... A to go, yeah. Yeah, and it's a 10-year plan. So we're here in year three. We're not at the halfway mark yet. They have all these pilot programs running. They are going to be looking for the information as those wrap up. They seem to be proving very popular. I I think the finance minister sort of mentioned that. But yeah, on these programs that have long timelines, I don't think it's really all that surprising that in the third year, you aren't quite seeing the same level of new investment that you were before. The other issue with childcare is that the province is also trying to get more people trained, more early childhood educators trained to be able to open those new spots. And so part of me wonders if like this is the year where they're waiting for 
the training programs that they've started to kick in and starting to see more people who are qualified for this quality childcare to come online. Right. Okay. Well, I guess my last question is between this and the throne speech, there wasn't a huge amount of new stuff. Is this kind of an indication of a government that's starting to run out of ideas or are you hearing rumblings about more stuff coming in the future that'll be, you know, maybe rolled out next year or anything, something like that? I mean, I, there's part of me that hates trying to read tea leaves, mostly because I don't like being wrong. <laughs> so, don't, but... It won't hold you to anything you say here. <laughs> to me, yeah, this it seems like the government wants to stay the course on that. I'm sure there are people, you know, within government and advising government who are saying, you know, now is the time. A lot of the programs you've introduced so far are popular. Plus, you know, our opponents are to varying degrees in disarray. Let's take the time and, and get into another election as soon as possible. But everything we've heard from both the premier and the finance minister is, you know, we intend to stay the course. We've got a lot more work to do and we want to keep doing that work and and making these improvements that we said we were going to make. So, I mean, the criticism about have they run out of ideas? I mean, there's, there's still a lot going on. Like, you know, the budget was one of the things I was covering this week, but there's also this whole situation around Coastal Gas Link and the Wet'suwet'en and, and all these blockades that are going on across the country, which, you know, to a certain degree, we're sort of distracting from the budget. I don't know that they've run out of ideas, but this this really did feel like a, you know, pushing ahead with various programs without sort of overextending themselves. Yeah. Right. So I I guess what I'm saying is I, I think we're going to stay the course or the government is going to try to stay the course on this one and we'll have the election next October, October 2021. Okay. Well, with that, let's move on to our net segment. Segment two, growing some of BC. So back in January, Vaughn Palmer from the uh, Vancouver Sun put out an article hinting that the BC government had this economic plan that they were uh, working on, a kind of strategic economic development plan for BC, but there wasn't any details. There wasn't anything available on the BC government's website about it, but just kind of hinted at a few things, but particularly piqued my curiosity on discussions about focusing on where the suburban growth was and I ended up filing an FOI for that and finally got a hold of it today. Uh, so I kind of want to go over some of what is in this document they have, and we'll throw a link up on the uh, website and in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it for themselves. So the plan is called A Framework for Improving British Columbian Standards of Living. It was prepared by the uh, Office of the Premier and the Deputy Minister, Don Wright. And overall, it kind of looks at a bunch of different aspects of the economy of British Columbia from what our exports are, who our main export markets are, and then looks at several specific sectors. So they talk about what they can do to leverage our agricultural capacities, develop our agricultural exports, as well as technology in the agribusiness sector. They spend a lot of time discussing forestry, both how to respond to the challenges that forestry industries encountered around the pine beetle issues, as well as what the opportunities are. And they place a significant amount of emphasis on 
developing mass timber and other engineered wood technologies, including a proposal that basically whenever possible for government buildings, projects going forward, that they'd uh, use a mass timber construction rather than concrete or steel or more conventional methods like that. They've been pushing ahead with that one pretty solidly so far. I think almost all of the especially affordable housing projects that I see announced are all it's all wood frame construction. So they're, yeah, they're- there's a lot of wood frame construction, especially for the ones that aren't the temporary modular housing at, that are kind of below six stories. Conventional wood frames, quite an economical way to build uh, in those locations. Mass timber is a bit different, and it's primarily used for larger and taller structures. So I think the most famous one in BC is the Brock Commons out at UBC, which is an 18-story building. And this past year, the government's made moves to update the BC building code to allow up to 12 stories with mass timber. So that one was coming federally, I think this year, but BC basically jumped the gun and was like, we're going to put this into place as soon as possible. Speaking of Brock Commons always makes me laugh because I remember when the Wood Innovation and Design Center, which is up in Prince George, was the tallest. That was a seven story building, I think. Yeah, seven or eight one of those two, and and Prince George was very proud of it. I actually worked in it when I was covering uh, the Canada Winter Games up there. So okay, did, did it feel appropriately innovative? It was very pretty and very bright and shiny and new at the time. I mean, it's still there. It's part of UNBC, and UNBC does a lot of stuff around forestry and and innovation. Interesting side note on the building code changes, though. BC announced it, and it was actually supported by firefighters here. And Alberta just announced a similar change and got a bunch of blowback from one of their professional firefighting associations essentially saying... We haven't heard much about this. We think that it could be a danger, you know, like maybe we shouldn't be plowing ahead with this. Um, Whereas the BC government seems to have taken the time to talk to firefighting associations and address whatever concerns they might have had about mass timber construction and what it could mean when you're fighting fires. Right. I I always find it funny whenever I read a a news story on mass timber how inevitably there's a dozen comments asked saying what about fire as as if <laughs> engineers and architects have not been made aware Never up until now that wood burns yeah and the, the the commenter is helpfully letting them know about wood being flammable well in using like on the mass timber front i mean one of the things we hear we have heard a lot from the premier whenever we talk about the issues in the forestry industry is essentially we need to go for value over volume you know, this is not the uh, the turn of the 19th or 20th century where BC just has sort of an unending or seemingly unending supply of very large trees to harvest. The province is looking at a lot of measures to be able to utilize sort of lower quality wood products and, and still find value in them. So that seems to marry in quite well. Yeah, there's a section in there which I didn't uh, have a chance to dig into too much about the opportunities for the wood pellet industry. So they're definitely looking at that. And just one final uh, thing on mass timber. It's not actually a major fire hazard because these are very large wooden structures and they're not the kind of two by four stick frame that most people think of when they think of wood buildings. And because of that, the outside in a fire chars and basically insulates the vast majority of all the timber beams 
to and prevents fire from penetrating inside of them. So I actually have really good fire protection and better than unprotected steel would in a fire. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but it's kind of counterintuitive. So you definitely get cases like the firefighters in Alberta who maybe haven't really dug into the difference between conventional wood and mass timber on that. So moving on, they also discussed the mining sector and the technology sector, which is the part I kind of really wanted to focus on because their ideas around the technology sector and particularly where it's located in BC and what that means for cities seems to be very problematic and not really well thought out and could actually be quite harmful to Vancouver if it moves ahead. So they talked quite a bit about channeling growth away from Vancouver into the suburbs, discussing encouraging growth elsewhere, but as a way to avoid overloading infrastructure and urban affordability, and even going so far as to say they would want to condition uh, grants to technology startups to have them locate in places that are not in downtowns. Hmm. Yeah, so that seems quite problematic for a variety of reasons. A big one being that for a government that wants to focus on developing a cleaner economy, this is basically doing the opposite of that by pushing growth to sprawl outward, to be located out in the Fraser Valley, which is not a very walkable or transit-friendly place, where it would mean all of these tech workers, rather than catching the SkyTrain, would have to drive. It overall would actually be quite challenging to reduce our transportation emissions while pursuing a strategy that tries to distribute jobs away from downtown Vancouver. And it also is a problem because one of the, well, the core function of a city is to bring people together, connect them with jobs and employment, employers with employees, as well as with each other. So you can spread ideas. And there's a strong body of evidence that density and concentration of talent and people is what sparks innovation and makes workers a lot more productive. And by trying to split apart the technology sector away from a few core areas, you're actually hurting businesses from being able to recruit tech workers, from being able to really develop the innovation that comes from having everybody in close proximity sharing ideas. And overall, this seems to be a proposal that would ultimately both hurt BC's tech sector as well as cause brawl and be quite environmentally damaging. I wonder how much of that is informed by, like, we hear a lot about companies are starting to have problems recruiting people to come to Vancouver because it is so expensive, it is so unaffordable. So, you know, obviously it's a lot more affordable to buy a home or rent a place out in the Fraser Valley or Surrey than it is in Vancouver. So I wonder if some of, like, that's where some of this is coming from rather than investing, you know, in the services or the densification that would need to happen to sort of make Vancouver more affordable, that this seems like either an easier or a more attractive strategy somehow? Yeah, although the the savings from living further out is significantly curtailed once you factor in transportation costs. Yeah, um, if you're not already yeah. driving a vehicle. Yeah, or if you have to drive further 
the the combined housing and transportation costs gradients pretty flat as you get away from downtown Vancouver all the way out to the Fraser Valley. Although if you're someone who like lived in Surrey or the Fraser Valley and is currently commuting into Vancouver for a job, that might sound more attractive to have the jobs out to work. I don't I don't know how the tech sector is divided when it comes to Vancouver and how many people are making that trip, but certainly I mean when the government removed tolls from the bridges saying that you know this is something that is really going to help the people who commute, that seems to speak to a lot of people who are making that daily trip into Vancouver all the time. Yeah, there's definitely a fair bit of it and you get quite a bit of substitution for I think people who might have caught the SkyTrain before started to drive more once the uh tolls were removed yeah so yeah you get a lot of this I, I think part of the idea is to kind of spread the benefits of a tech sector around a lot more but it, it comes at the cost of the bent of having a really vibrant tech sector and that's not really very good especially as we're trying to grow that sector and it's going to have a bunch of knock-on effects particularly when it comes to the environment and sprawl and overall i just doesn't really make a lot of sense to actively spend money and resources to try and make these sectors go to places they don't want to locate already where they'd be less productive and less successful. You know, if there was already a strong case to locate out in Laneley or Squamish, you know, these companies would be doing it. And it's not really a great use of government resources to try and push them away from where the talents is and where you'd find a lot of employees and where it would be good to locate for the reasons of productivity and innovation. Hmm. And they also talked about trying to mimic Silicon Valley's model, which does actually have quite a lot of their large tech companies out in the more suburban parts of the Bay Area. But I'm not sure anyone who's really looked at the Bay Area's planning or their massive sky high rents or their very high percentage of emissions come from transportation would really see that as a model we should aspire to. It's more luck and path dependence that led so much of their tech companies to locate out there. And more and more you're seeing them locate in, in San Francisco. So it really does not seem to be very smart to try and follow that model rather than trying to be out and ahead and actually look forward at where the trends are in tech companies, not what they were 30 years ago. So I think those are my main problems, that this is just a really badly thought out document when it comes to how to distribute jobs away from the, the main urban centers where you do have a lot of growth, where you do have a lot of benefits from having dense, sustainable, walkable, high productivity areas. And it just doesn't really seem like a, a good policy and it also seems like the government's pretty content to let Vancouver kind of wither a bit if it means directing more money towards some of the outlying areas, which might make political sense because there's more swing ridings in Surrey, but it's not great for the long-term health of the province considering how much of the GDP is generated just within like the few blocks of downtown Vancouver and this. And that's drain out of businesses. I was going to say, like, 
The mention of Surrey is always kind of interesting because that is likely to be one of the larger and more bitterly fought political battlegrounds when when we do go to a new election. And I can also see, like, the NDP is often criticized as being sort of an urban-focused party, not a party that appeals to or understands more rural areas of the province particularly well. So... You know, as you're sort of saying, you talk about, you know, they seem content to maybe let Vancouver wither a bit. And yet you look at sort of how Vancouver's doing in many ways compared to other areas of the province that are suffering from the forestry crisis or, you know, who haven't really seen a benefit from sort of the tech and still in a lot of ways, tourist boom that Vancouver has seen over the past decade or so. And I wonder what, you know, people from those other communities would say when it comes to the province talking about potentially investing in them, even if they are proximate to Vancouver, you know, not say the farther flung areas, but how they would frame, you know, oh, the province is, is, you know, thinking of encouraging investors to sort of think outside of Vancouver. I'm guessing that would have a decent amount of appeal. Yeah, there's something to be said for that. And you definitely don't want to kind of leave large parts of the province behind. I think where it kind of flips for me into being actively counterproductive is when you're starting to spend resources to push companies into areas where it doesn't necessarily work well for them, but in order to get access to government grants that they need, they need to do that rather than doing more focused where it makes sense in those places, like what we were talking about earlier when it comes to the investments they want to make in forestry and mining and agriculture. So it doesn't really seem to be particularly well thought out. And I I can see why they're trying to do it and and why it's a, we, we want to make sure everybody's benefiting from a strong technology industry and the benefits that Vancouver's seen, but it seems to be a really kind of bad way to go about it. Yeah, the, the only other thing I w- kind of want to touch on here is they do discuss the uh, Clean BC plan that we were discussing a bit earlier, but I was kind of surprised how heavily LNG featured in it. And they're, they're kind of really leaning into the LNG as an offset for coal in Asia, which doesn't seem to be the strongest footing to put forward when it comes to the clean technology sector and really kind of trying to reduce species carbon emissions. Yeah, and that's been sort of a contentious point ever since, you know, the government sort of made its pitch for the LNG Canada project. And since that has moved forward, there's been talk about, you know, whether BC and Canada should get the credit for supposedly reducing emissions that other countries like, say, China would otherwise have had from coal if we ship them LNG. And then there's people who are like, that's really not the way that works. It's about sort of your own domestic emissions profiles. But yeah, I mean, LNG is something that for a lot of people, you know, you say, well, we're going to develop like a, a fossil fuel industry, essentially, in order, like as a key part of our emissions reduction strategy. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. And yet that's essentially what what the NDP is pitching with Clean BC. LNG is a huge part of that plan and one that the government says it is confident it can sort of shoehorn into its emissions profile while still making these reductions over the next couple of decades. 
Yeah, I'm not entirely sold on that. And what's most interesting is that it seems to be a, a talking point that would be much more comfortable for the BC Liberals to be making than the NDP. And it's, I mean, this was something that we saw come up in question period this week where I think it was government house leader Mike Farnworth was sort of taking all the questions. Uh, Premier John Horgan was absent from question period. And I think it was the Liberals LNG critic, Ellis Ross, was saying, you know, Christy Clark and the Liberals were the ones who finally sort of helped the Heisla Nation who had been championing like a potential LNG opportunity that Christy Clark and the liberals were the ones to sort of take them seriously and, and shepherd the industry towards reality. And Farnworth kind of came back and said, yeah, they might've had that idea, but we're the ones actually doing it. And then Ross comes back and says, you may be, you know, sort of enjoying the fruits of liberal labor, but you didn't do any of the heavy lifting to sort of lay the the groundwork here. So it's interesting to watch that dynamic where the liberals sort of tried for a really long time and promised a big LNG boom that never really materialized. And now here the NDP is saying, oh, well, we've got it all wrapped up. We've got it taken care of. Yeah, the, the liberals kind of spent most of their efforts for the better part of four and a bit years trying to get that through. And yeah, the, the NDP now get to claim credit for what it's worth and how, how much that's going to help them. I think kind of remains to be seen. That and also like, yes, we've made progress on the LNG Canada front, but that project is far from a done deal. And sort of, especially over the last few weeks, it looks more and more like there may be some serious roadblocks, if you will, ahead of that project. Yeah, well, let's get into that. The only thing I'll just quickly wrap up this segment with is that kind of like the budget, there was just very little in here about transportation beyond some kind of very high level thoughts, which is rather disappointing because they, they really do seem to, once you read the transportation section in conjunction with what we we're talking about earlier, you get the sense that the, the government feels it's easier to try and just push people and jobs away from cities than to try and fix the uh, transportation systems in those cities, which I don't think is a very great long-term plan, especially because if we are going to have most of the province living in a fairly low carbon way, it's going to have to be in fairly dense urban environments. And if the government isn't really thinking about it now, it doesn't bode very well for that. Well, and especially like I went from having lived in Vancouver for more than a decade to moving to Prince George for work. I did have a driver's license at the time, but I didn't own a car. And very shortly after moving to Prince George, I was working an early morning shift in radio. And it was like, okay, so I can either buy myself a car in order to be able to get to work for five o'clock in the morning because there is no transit option that will and do I'm that. Guessing, yeah. And I'm guessing biking in minus 40 is not very much fun. No, especially when you have to cross not one, but two highways in order to get to work and there's no overpass. So you're, you're literally biking on the side of the highway through a major intersection across like eight and nine lanes of traffic. You know, so if you're if you want people who currently work in an urban environment to move to, you know, other cities that don't have the same transit options, like that's another expense. And that can just be a barrier to people being willing to take advantage of job opportunities in these other communities. 
Well, well put. But let's move on to our final segment about the update on what's happening with the blockades. So over this past week, at the various protests and blockades of rail lines across the country seem to kind of bubble up and become a much more pressing national issue. Trudeau cut short a trip to the Caribbean to try and win us a UN Security Council seat that we probably weren't going to get anyway to come home and work on trying to resolve this issue. The Commons had a emergency debate earlier in this week, as well as the Prime Minister met with most of the party leaders. Andrew Scheer was uninvited after he gave a speech that was definitely full of political... It, it was definitely framed in a way that's very strongly supported one side of it, but wasn't, I don't think, inherently disqualifying, d- despite what some of the other leaders said about it. But yeah, that, that definitely, I think, drew some disapprovement towards the prime minister kind of cutting out some of the leader of the opposition when inviting the rest of the uh, leadership team from all the other parties in to discuss it. Yeah, I mean, it really looks good when it looks like you're cutting one of the, like, shunning a kid from the lunch table sort of thing. It, it, it seemed petty. Yeah. But as the was announced today, uh, it does seem like there's going to be some progress. The RCMP sent a letter to the hereditary chiefs that Bill Blair announced today, the uh, public safety minister, that they want to propose to kind of relocate the RCMP personnel to the town of Houston, which is kind of the nearest large town to where the uh, blockade and the dispute is located. Yeah, no, we and we heard some of that from the premier today. He had, you know, a media availability with uh, the legislator, the legislature press gallery. I have seen some tweets. There are some of the hereditary leaders and others involved on the Wet'suwet'en side, the office of the Wet'suwet'en, saying that. The RCMP may have said that, but they haven't seen them remove themselves yet or make any move in that direction. So, I mean, that sort of is, you know, it's a commitment that seems to be on the table, but we haven't actually seen it happen yet. Yeah, my understanding is this was an offer, not necessarily a statement of what their next move is going to be. Yeah. So until the, the hereditary chiefs have insisted that the RCMP withdrawal draw as a precondition to any discussions with the premier or the prime minister or coastal gasoline for that matter. And this seems to be the RCMP saying they'd be open to that. But at the moment, it doesn't seem like there's a case where the, they're necessarily going to commit before kind of other steps are taken to kind of move this into uh, the point where talks start to happen. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it was interesting today, the premier having been on a council of the Federation phone call yesterday involving sort of all of the leaders of, of provinces and territories, as well as the prime minister talking about a situation that was sort of born in BC, but has spread across the country, just about major infrastructure disruptions. And one of the things that struck me Horgan seemed very frustrated today and and he mentioned he he seems to put a lot of faith in in the federal government's leadership saying that you know they have a good understanding of what it is that's going on in BC what the conflict is 
the difference between band councils and hereditary leadership and how BC is sort of in this unique position where we don't have a lot of treaties in place with First Nations. And that's very different than what a lot of the rest of the provinces are used to dealing with. And he specifically said that part of yesterday's call was actually spent bringing other provincial leaders up to speed on why the situation in BC is what it is, sort of implying that some of the other provincial leaders, so here's a quote from Horgan, they don't have a deep understanding of the complexity of these questions and they don't understand how elected band councils could have said yes and other hereditary leaders have said no. And then the fact that that, you know, is a legitimate sort of issue here in BC because it doesn't really exist elsewhere. And so other premiers don't understand it. Right. In fact, I think a lot of British Columbians haven't exactly figured out how they view the situation as well. And he mentioned that too. Like there's a lot of people in BC are sort of really learning for the very first time that yes, there are first nations in this province where they have an elected leadership per the Indian act, something that was instituted under that piece of legislation, but they also have a traditional and hereditary leadership that still plays an active role and the decisions that the First Nation makes and the way that it conducts itself. So yeah, a lot a lot of learning going on. And I think, you know, a certain degree of frustration with the people who are sort of at the table trying to figure out how to deal with the issues that have come out of this dispute with the Wet'suwet'en and Coastal Gasling. Yeah, and I think kind of wherever people fall on this, the one thing that should be pretty clear is that the situation with respect to most First Nations within BC and the, the lack of clarity because there's no treaties, the case law is still very much evolving around Aboriginal title and what that means in practice that these issues do need to get resolved because the, the turret approach is not sustainable at all. And yeah, that was something that came up today too. The premier not sort of saying it it himself, but saying, you know, we have heard from various Indigenous groups and from from members of the Wet'suwet'en themselves and from other First Nations and Indigenous leaders, like the Wet'suwet'en people need to figure out for themselves how their band council and hereditary leaders are going to interact and how this is going to work going forward. Unfortunately, given sort of the current circumstance and, and what's happening with the Coastal Gaslink Project, you know, everything is in the public eye right now. And, and this company has injunctions and wants to move ahead with work. And so I don't think it's a it's a great environment to be asking these questions that are so fraught with, you know, just all kinds of issues from the environmental to questions of, you know, Aboriginal rights and title. Yeah. And it's, I, I don't blame a lot of British Columbians for kind of being somewhat skeptical of any non-democratic and hereditary systems, but how those interact still is needs to be resolved and it's it's gonna be a challenge. And like I said, there's a lot of various factors going in here. And uh, we've talked on the podcast for over a month now on this, I think. I'm still kind of unsure of where I stand personally in relation to all those various factors and how they interact. And it's hard to kind of see where they go forward. But when it's such a heated state it's not necessarily the best time to be trying to nail all those details down when yeah you have have an outcome that a lot of people are trying to get to and there's it's easy to rationalize to this 
the system level questions that get you to the outcome you want, whether or not that actually makes sense in the long run. Yeah. And another something else that sort of came out today, there's been some discussion that, you know, maybe they just need to push like the province needs to push pause on this project at this point in time. And maybe coastal gas lane needs to consider just like pulling out of Wet'suwet'en territory and, you know, let some discussions and resolution take place without, you know, the company sort of being in there inflaming people's emotions on certain things. And Horgan basically said, that's not something we're considering. Like this project is where it is. The company has got, you know, all of these permits in place. They've gone through the various application pro- uh, processes. At this point in time, we are not interested in considering that option. So I think a stronger statement than a lot of people were expecting, but it's an interesting one. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you know, the NDP is kind of in a tough spot. There are a lot of people who feel that their current stance on the situation with the Wet'suwet'en, you know, cannot be reconciled in any way with the fact that this is a government that just passed legislation looking to, you know, bring the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples into provincial law. That was just a couple of months ago. And now here we are. And the uh, federal government announced they're actually going to be delaying their reconciliation legislation until exactly. the post off. So, I, I, I get the politics of why it looks really bad to try and introduce that in the middle of a, a, a rather heated conflict on it, but at the same time, delaying it isn't great either. So, yeah, I, maybe with this announcement, what the RCMP is doing today, things will kind of start to move ahead, but it doesn't seem like we're much closer to a resolution than we were a month ago on this. No, and it does sort of seem like like tempers are fraying a bit. I mean, Horgan was talking about... So the federal Crown Indigenous Relations Minister, Carolyn Bennett, and our provincial Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation Minister, Scott Fraser, have sent... I think it's their second letter to the Wet'suwet'en Hereditary Chief saying, look, we're ready to meet with you guys. We can be in Smithers, which is sort of the main urban center in the area. We can be there in a day or two to meet with you to sort of carry this forward. And when we were talking to the premier just before noon today, he was saying, we haven't had a response from them to that offer. And, you know, saying communication has to be a two-way street. You have to have both parties willing to sort of talk and, and have these discussions in order to move forward at the same time the Wet'suwet'en sort of have laid out what they need to have happen what they want to have happen in order to engage in those talks at all and those conditions haven't been met yet like with the RCMP withdrawal so I don't know where things go from here it's a challenge and I I think the broader Canadian publics that they seem to be Somewhat understand it first, but as these blockades drag on, I think that's going to be less so, and there'll be more urgency behind the government to uh, push ahead and resolve this. And um, and in that context, when one party wants to talk and the other isn't, it, it may change public perception quite a bit, especially as this drags out. Yeah, I mean, having public opinion on your side is is always sort of a tricky thing. I do... You know, like, I find it understandable that there are Indigenous groups and First Nations that are kind of skeptical when provincial and federal bodies are like, yes, we want to talk to you, you know, let's get together and discuss this and we'll find a resolution because there are so many examples in our Canadian history of instances where First Nations did give 
you know, Canadian and provincial governments the benefit of the doubt when it came to discussions and then did not see, you know, sort of the promised resolution or solution come out of that. So, you know, there's so much history behind these relationships and and interactions, you know, like I'm, there's not a lot that I've seen that surprises me. And yet I feel like I've also learned a lot in the past few weeks and even the past year, because, you know, we were dealing with a similar situation last year. It didn't last as long. It didn't spread as far, but we did have that confrontation between Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and the RCMP and Coastal Gaslink last year as well. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of deja vu happening with this. A little bit. Well, I mean, hopefully this will be resolved by NetSuite's episode. But if not, <laughs> no doubt we'll be talking about the latest developments next week. But before we go, because we are running a little on, the discussion that seems to have at least taken up Vancouver Twitter today is on the anniversary of the 2010 Olympics, should Vancouver bid again for the 2030 Olympics? So oh hot take, yes or no, should we go for Vancouver 2030? My hot take is no. I was definitely rolling my eyes this morning because the first question the premier got asked was sort of what's your take on Vancouver bidding for the 2030 Olympics? I will say, I, like I was living in Vancouver at the time. I had a lot of fun downtown on Granville Street, but primarily what I remember of the Vancouver Olympics is that a lot of downtown smelled like pee all the time. And uh, that, that I hasn't entirely changed depending on where you are. But. No, but it got worse. It definitely got worse or was like wider spread, like the pea smell kind of expanded. And the other thing being that I had to go to work two and a half hours early. I was working for an engineering firm in downtown Vancouver and they shifted our schedules around because they didn't want downtown workers clogging up the sky train when the tourists were trying to get to the various events downtown and i am not a morning person so that was really not a pleasant experience for me <laughs> okay and i'm unsure where i fall on this one i i wasn't living in vancouver at the time but i my reading week did overlap a bit so i did get to spend a day here while visiting family in victoria during the olympics and it was a lot of fun and I don't know. It's expensive. Most places don't actually make the money. Vancouver was kind of the lucky one, or there was a lot of skill that went into making it base its sass and actually turn into profit, which is not the usual way Olympics go. And if we can use a lot of the facilities we built last time, maybe it makes sense, but there's probably better uses for the money, even if it would be quite a good event to have if we can find a way to do it cheaply, which is by no means a sure thing. Yeah. And I mean, asked about it today, the Horgan basically said, sure, that sounds like maybe it could be fun. Vancouver is going to need to do the footwork on this one. And once they've done that, then maybe the province will, you know, kind of take a look at the bid and, and consider offering some support. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, if we got the candle line out of it and based on the lack <laughs> of interest in this budget, maybe it's what it's going to take to get the uh, net skytrain built. There you go. Okay, well, uh, thanks for joining me tonight and filling in when Ian's off. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners where they can uh, find your work? Well, I pretty much live on Twitter these days. My work account, if you're interested in question period coverage and tweeting about legislation and various technical briefings we get from the government, that is BC Today Official. 
If you want to see pictures of my gorgeous feline, who I don't think made an oral appearance on this episode, but we'll see. I'm at So Bitter So Sweet. And then if you're interested in getting a free trial to actually read some of my work, there's also some stuff that's not behind a paywall on politicstoday.news. And as we mentioned at the start of the show, you can get a free two-week trial of the newsletter as well. And uh, it's been an invaluable resource for preparing for the podcast. Uh, so I do recommend everyone check it out. Yep. Lots of, lots of writing about politics and probably more writing about cannabis than you expect. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, joining me tonight. Always a pleasure. And that has been Politicoast. Find links to everything we talked about at Politicoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our exclusive Slack channel at patreon.com slash Politicoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia. As there's a partnership. Politicoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by Cortado Productions. Thanks for listening.